Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello and welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. My name is Dean. Joining me is my co-host, Sophia. Hi, everyone. And today's guest is Mark Laflamme. Hello, Mark. Hi, Dean. Hi, Sophia. Thanks for having me in. No, it's great to have you. Uh, this is uh, the first time we've had someone who focuses on uh, like evolutionary history of, of the Earth. Uh, and it's such a vast uh, field. I'm, it kind of surprises me. I was going to say, it's the first time you brought in an actual scientist. <laughs> Shots fired. Oh, man. <laughs> You're going to get a bunch of nasty emails, right? Exactly, from our previous guests. <laughs> I can imagine. So what, what is it about, uh, let's, let's talk about your background a bit. What is it that got you interested in the field that you study? Yeah, so I started off as a biologist, which I think is probably fairly different from a lot of the people who end up in earth sciences. Uh, I started off with a biology degree. I was actually a zoologist. My big love was insects and parasites. So I just fell in love with the entire concept of um, how do you classify insects, right? So the phylogeny, we call it. So the hierarchy in terms of what is related to what and uh, large scale evolutionary questions based on do we understand how many different species or how the various species interact with each other, evolutionarily speaking? Um, and so that was always something I was very, very interested in. And um, when I got into my last year, I had to pick essentially an undergrad thesis like most of us do. And by that point, I'd already kind of taken a course in earth sciences. I was really starting to get intrigued by the concept. And so I started looking into possible paleontology-oriented uh, field projects. So um, the first one I got, which I did not take, but I'd like to tell the story if I can, just because it's a little bit of a funny story. Um, it was to work with literally one of the legends in the field of Precambrian life, which is uh, Hans Hoffman, who, uh, so he was a former professor at Université de Montréal and then ended up at McGill. And uh, when I say, you know, the leader, it was like, if you go back and look at the work that's been done on Canadian paleontology over the years, Hans Hoffman is everywhere. And so he was a massive, massive influence. And I went to see him and I asked him, because I was at McGill at the time, I was like, I'm looking for a, an honors thesis. And he's like, I got a great project for you. Let me come back and I'll show you a bunch of specimens back in my office. So we went up to his office and, and as a typical earth science office, right? You walk in, there's rocks everywhere. It's, there's uh, access of, of collections of posters in the walls and things. And so he starts opening up these drawers and he brings out these rocks that are covered in these black swiggles. They look like spirals that are basically on these rocks and they're super small. You can't see anything. And I'm a biologist. And so he brings these out and he's got this giant smile and he's like, I want you to work with Grapania. These are some of the first eukaryotes in earth history. Like these things are 1.5 billion years old. Wow. And I look down at it and I can't see anything. Like I see <laughs> squiggle back lines. And so my instant reaction, funny enough, is I'm sorry, I can't do this. This is, this is, I'm a biologist. I don't see any biology here. This is really, really weird. So I went to the second project, which was to work on insects in amber. And since I had a really strong background in entomology, the study of insects, bringing it over to the earth science project through a bit of, of uh, you know, insects in amber, it 
was the project I ended up taking. Now, lo and behold, literally 10 years later, I'm preparing for my PhD defense. And who's my external supervisor? Hans Hoffman. And so Hans, become, you know, he'd become a, a, a colleague by that point because throughout my career, I eventually ended up doing my master's uh, that upgraded to a PhD. So I never finished my master's, but I did my PhD at Queens with Guy Narbon, who is you know, a really big idiocrine worker. And Hans Hoffman was his supervisor for his PhD. So Hans became my grandfather, as we often use it from a paleontology term. Um, and he served on my committee. Uh, we had done field work together. But I, it always makes me wonder what would have happened if I had actually started a project with Hans. Would I have gone a completely different direction? Would I have uh, avoided Canadian paleontology and gone into something completely different? And so I've always been really appreciative of the idea that there's no direct path. You know, you can't tell right now where you're going to be 10 years from now and there's no such thing of like oh you've made a decision that you're never going to be able to change you'll never be able to go back to do what you did before um for me it's always been these these opportunities and as you take them it opens new doors and brings you new directions and so for me that 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 ability to be able to get back into a topic that was literally offered to me 10 years prior um was really kind of fun and uh, it really strengthened that relationship I had with Hans um, after the fact. Yeah, that's that's definitely a theme we find uh, interviewing people who work in the earth sciences is so few of them actually start out in the earth sciences. They they come from chemistry, they come from physics, they come from engineering, um, right? Or yeah, it's just it's just amazing. And you come from biology, so it's just amazing how interdisciplinary the the, the field is and how many outlets and inlets there are. And I would even go further as to saying it's very multidisciplinary, which I would argue a lot of STEM disciplines and non-STEM disciplines are really starting to branch into. But earth science is one of the few that is incredibly welcoming of other disciplines. It's almost as if we as earth scientists are looking for collaborators in other fields and other disciplines to help us with earth science, as opposed to being um, you know, someone who's in a discipline and is, and is kind of trying to make their way into another discipline. Earth sciences are often incredibly inviting of individuals with very different backgrounds. Um, if I look at my actual lab in terms of graduate students, right, I have um, so I have five graduate students, of which um, you know four are earth scientists, but the fifth is an engineer. Like his background's in engineering, and so it is not at all surprising to bring people in with completely different backgrounds simply because, um, and in paleontology is, is one of these disciplines where um, we're always looking for new ideas and new approaches to study our fossils. And that often comes from integrating other disciplines into the study. So techniques or tools or instruments that are super common in engineering or in physics or in chemistry are often not as commonly used in other disciplines like earth sciences or something like that. And so when you come in with those kinds of new tools, it allows you to ask new questions. It allows you to rephrase a question that we thought we understood really well and allows us a new tool to look at it. And so we breed and we tend to really engage and encourage a lot of these other disciplines to help us in our sciences. 
Mm -hmm, absolutely. And just to speak more on that point, I think there is this like someone's actually quantified how multidisciplinary uh, earth sciences is. Not too long ago, I saw this diagram where it had like the main uh, seven streams of, of sciences, like math and sciences, which had like uh, math, medicine, earth sciences, physics, chemistry, biology. And depending on where each discipline was, um, it would connect to the different ones. And earth science was super close to the center. So it was connected by branching with, with a bunch of the other ones. So that's really cool. It really is. So uh, another kind of thing about uh, about just science in general and, and earth science in particular is that there's often a bias towards finding the one cause for a certain phenomenon or event. So having one simple explanation for something is is usually preferred over someone saying, well, you know, it depends. It depends on on this variable or another. But in most cases, especially in earth sciences, the correct answer is usually a combination of causes. This makes sense, though, considering how complicated earth systems are. It's so complicated that we even had to divide it into four spheres that both act on their own and interact with each other. And so by spheres, uh, we have you know, the atmosphere, hydrosphere, biosphere, and geosphere. And uh, perhaps in no other science is the interaction between these four more explored than in paleontology, which studies the history of Earth through fossils. That's what, hint, hint, that's what Mark does. <laughs> uh, one of the most fascinating things actually about Earth's history is the extinction events, because the conditions must have been so inhabitable as to cause the extinction of thousands of species. And so yeah. what led to these events is still debated today. And uh, the paper that we'll be talking about today is... Uh, about one of the most famous extinctions and what could have been the causes behind it. So Dean, uh, take us away with the paper summary. Yeah, so uh, Mark will kind of go through this with me. Uh, the paper is kind of like a review or maybe even like a fact check of this group of deposits called the NAMA. NAMA group, is that what you pronounce it? Yeah, yeah, so it's it's an assemblage. Um, it's kind of an arbitrary assemblage in a, in a certain way, but it, it's a, um, it's a group of sections from around the world that contain very particular fossils. And, you know, we're fairly confident that it also represents a very specific time interval. But that is something that is still very much ongoing in terms of, of argument, in terms of when these things are happening. But the NAMA itself is representing this last little bit of the Precambrian as we lead up to the big Cambrian diversification, this Cambrian explosion event that we talk of. So the NAMA is the one that's bracketing. It's just before we get into this, the Phanerozoic, right? The, the advent of life. So let's put ourselves in the right time and place. We got the Cambrian explosion event was about 541 million years ago. So, so that's, you know, I think the Cambrian explosion, it's, it's an important one to think of because it's a, uh, it's not sure, and there's there's various uh, camps that kind of argue back and forth in terms of was it a very rapid event from a geological and biological means, and by rapid event we're talking you know in the million like a million or two million years like was this a very rapid event, blink of an eye from an earth science standpoint, or was there a much more protracted event? And so it lasted tens of millions of years, but a lot of the evidence we'd be looking for is cryptic and hard to decipher from the fossil record. And so we really end up with these two sides of the coin where um, you know, some people want to read the uh, geological record very faithfully. And so when we see these first appearances of these fossils, they would argue that that is close to when the, you know, so most of the group had evolved. 
And then there's other sides of things uh, where we kind of argue that there's probably tens to even maybe hundreds of millions of years of evolution that's kind of missing because we're just not sure how to fossilize it or what to look for in the fossil record to get the evidence for it. And so that debate goes back and forth. And so you'll have some people who would argue that the, the Cambrian explosion was taking place before we even hit the Cambrian. Um, whereas there's other groups who would argue that it is a little bit later, like you know, five somewhere between 520 and 540 million years, depending on um, certain aspects of that argument. Mm-hmm. And so the the place of this of these deposits is modern day Namibia. So the this particular study, yeah, and I would argue that Namibia is probably one of the best places in the world to see these deposits, um, but they are common from other places. So, for instance, I have a, a, a research uh, group, uh, or sorry, I should say, a research uh, program uh, that worked out of uh, Iran, and so I had colleagues from Iran who were collecting the same aged units. So these Nama aged units. Uh, I also have close colleagues who work in the Southwest US, United States. And again, the Southwest US has a lot of these Nama aged, just before the Cambrian explosion aged units uh, that all contain these kind of similar fossils. But Namibia is probably the best place to go in terms of overall rock exposure. There's just so much of it to look at. And even though there are multiple groups of researchers working there, because there's so much rock, we could be running entire field programs without even coming close to running into each other. Right. So the depositional environments of this Nama group, so it's it's largely shallow seas, like a, a diverse environment, a selection of environments pertaining to shallow seas, I believe. Could you tell us why these deposits are ideal for, for studying this period of time and why it might stand out more compared to other deposits in the world? Mm-hmm. So... In terms of of how often we fossilize uh, organisms, one of the important things is to basically remove it from any type of environment in which it can be uh, played around with, right? So in most cases, that means we got to grab our carcass and we have to bury it. We have to remove it from scavengers. We have to remove it from very oxygenated environments where we can have a lot of bacterial interactions because all of those will lead to aspects of fossils just disappearing and not being fossilized. And so there are organisms, our bones just don't become fossils. And so you really need that very rapid deposition. And so right at the top of these shelves, when we're dealing with um, these shallow water kind of environments, they're often plagued by storms, hurricanes, things like that, that drag and bring in lots of sediment and then rapidly dumps it onto these, these communities of organisms. And so having environments that bring in a lot of sediment and deposit a lot of sediment very rapidly allows us to fossilize things that much easier. Right. So I, I read that it was um, beneath the, I forget the, the, the terms for these, even though SEDS was just uh, last year. But so you have like this zone of waves where your everyday waves, which are constantly hitting the shore. So it's beneath the depth at which that kind of stuff would disturb the the seafloor, but it's still above the potential zone of uh, stormy or cataclysmic like waves, like tsunamis or whatnot. Exactly. And that's the important part is that if it's too shallow, right? Um, so I would argue for mo- most of the places that, that we would go swimming and uh, things like that, it would be too shallow because uh, just the back and forth motion of the ocean would be enough to uh, bring up and exhume things that were buried even just lightly. 
So you have to kind of get away from the the, the zone of, the, of waves that go back and forth regularly. And so if you're able to get 10 to 15, you know, 20 meters depth, then you start being less influenced by your surface waves. And you then you become very influenced mostly by large storms. And so when, uh, you know, I went, when I was actually uh, down in uh, Bermuda, uh, it was during my graduate program, we had a, a, a field station that we would go to every year for a carbonate sedimentology course and it was in Bermuda and the year we were there we got hit by a, a large hurricane hurricane fabian and as part of that hurricane we got to see the remobilization of sediment how we grab entire beaches that get picked up as part of these large storms and they get dragged back into the ocean and all the sand gets dumped uh, much 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 deeper into the water uh, and so they they Areas that don't normally get covered by sand and sediment then gets dumped on these large, big uh, deposits that come with it. So seeing the aftermath of a hurricane like that was probably the closest I've ever come to seeing what kind of event would lead to the fossil record that I see. The, this, uh, this idea of seeing these large catastrophic events that would dump tons of sediment in there. So I remember one of the days we walked out, uh, you know, we had gone to the beach you know, two days prior. And then when we went back to the same beach, the beach was gone. The entire beach fund had got completely ripped up and then it got dragged out hundreds and hundreds of meters away from the islands. And so wow. what was a nice gentle walk in off this beach into these deeper, deeper waters was almost a cliff. Like you got to the end and it was like, you'd be walking and wow. I'll never forget the, uh, you'd be walking on the, the, the ground, you know, underwater, right? And then you would hit these elevations and then it would fall back into a pit. And then you'd fit an elevation and you'd fall back into the pit. And so you could feel these large scale ripples, right? You call them mega ripples when they're associated with these large, big storm events. And they were these big, long wavelengths uh, of these up and downs and up and downs as a reaction of this big, giant storm. So it was really cool to see a modern example of what would become most likely a fossilization bed, a fossil bed, uh, millions of years in the future from now. Another crossover with uh, sedimentology, because they would look at those ripples and and they would see that there was a storm during this period of time. Yeah, it's it, that's the fun thing about earth sciences is um, if you go out into the field with an earth science scientist, uh, they don't just see a pile of rocks, right? They don't just see a series of rocks on top of rocks and top of the rocks and some of them are gray, some of them are red. They see environments. We see ancient systems. We see ancient worlds that are, these organisms were living in. And so we use clues that are found in the sediments to try and describe these ancient environments. So, you know, I can't go into the fossil record and tell you that this is, you know, this storm happened on a Tuesday and it was probably sunny outside and probably about 16 degrees Celsius. But what I could do, however, is we could tell you that this was probably what kind of overall environment, you know, was this a beach or was this much further deeper down? We could tell you whether or not the the aspects of the sediments that came in, were they from uh, a source that we know? Were they from a local beach or were they dragged much, much further away? Um, We can tell you aspects of even the directions that these sediments were coming in from as they were being deposited down. So you can sometimes tell where ancient beaches would have been simply by knowing the direction the sediment was moved. And 
we've become really, really good as earth scientists to be able to describe these ancient environments. And what makes paleontology fun is that we try and bring a, a biological component to that. So we use these ancient environments, either in terms of describing what environments these animals were probably living in, or, you know, what kind of controls are on this system? You know, was this, was this lake hypersaline? Did it have excessive amounts of salts, making it so that only very few organisms could live there? And so as a paleontologist, I'm constantly using fossils as tools to tell me about ancient environments. But at the same time, I'm also using the geological record to tell me about these ancient environments so that they can start controlling or helping me understand how these organisms were living in these ancient environments. Yeah, I, I got to say that what probably was my favorite part of, of my SEDS class was um, to be able to look at these pictures, um, these these assemblages of rocks, like elongated rocks or these waves and stuff, and be able to like picture you know, a, a flow direction of a river or, or the depth of, of the shore or the, of the lake. And it'd be really, it's just, yeah, that was, that was definitely kind of a cool takeaway that I got from that class. I fully agree. <laughs> um, back to the paper though. <laughs> so um, this, this period of time, you have this, for, for lack of a better word, this increasing maybe explosion of evolutionary adaptations, uh, life's changing and, finding new ways to get energy. But at the same time, there's like this increasing rate at which the organisms are affecting their surroundings, affecting their environment. Um, and you kind of talk about the the importance of, of those two things and considering them separately. You talk about the importance of bioturbation and that's what that's one of the ways that they, they affect their environment. The mixing of ocean sediments and pore water uh, what is the, can you talk about why this is important? Yeah, totally. Um, so it, it's interesting. I don't know about how many other disciplines this happens to, but it happens quite a bit in paleontology is um, we find ourselves actually trying to define who we are, right? So paleontology is a term that, that's been around for a very, very long time. But recently, a lot of paleontologists have started to take over the term called a geobiologist. So geologists who utilize biology or biologists who utilize the earth sciences to understand specifically the interconnectivity of earth and life, how earth influences life, but also life influences earth, right? And this can have profound effects. You know, we talked about the spheres early on with Sophia, right? Um, those spheres, uh, the biosphere being one of them, is intimately, intimately linked with environments. It's intimately linked with how nutrients are transferred within this. And so they are directly linked to the hydrosphere. They're directly linked to the geosphere, 100%. But what sometimes gets overlooked as well is the idea that the biology can also influence geology. And that's a harder one to wrap our heads around. But there's times in Earth history where it becomes really prevalent. And one of these times you can see is during the Ediacaran, during the Precambrian, because we start seeing the advent of complex life. So not just you know, single-celled organisms, not just uh, fungi or algae or things like that, but starting to get with really complex life, similar to what we see in terms of animals. And animals are, are incredibly important as they interact with their environment to drastically change these environments. And so we call these ecosystem engineers. 
And what's what we like about the idea of ecosystem engineers is it really does support a lot of what we see in the biological world, right? If you think back to some simple things as a beaver who's constructing a dam, that has a tremendous alteration of the geographic range. It could change how rivers are moving around, where water gets found, all those kind of things. So it's a very visual thing for us. We can understand that very well. But if we start digging into a much deeper, deeper into that concept, uh, a good example are clams. Clams are incredibly important for filter feeding, for extracting particles from the oceans to feed. And those organisms, as they're doing that, they're actually helping oxygenate these ancient these these waters. And so uh, you can. There's been some beautiful examples of cases. Uh, using um, various early colonized areas in North America. So the Chesapeake Bay is usually an example that's used where when there was over, uh, I don't know if it's called overfishing, when you hunt down too many clams, but over clamming, maybe that's the word. I don't know. Um, <laughs> as they started extracting all these all these clams and stuff from the, from the waters, they started realizing very quickly that algae started coming in and they started affecting the whole ecosystem. And there were times in, in, during the year where the, the, these waters were essentially anoxic. And it wasn't until the fishing got regulated much more, we stopped collecting those clams in that way. And it, the, the return was able to then again bring this oxygen back simply to this feedback loop of feeding and extracting these nutrients from the water column. And so we, we, we need to start really thinking about what influences life have on our environments around us, especially as we start you know, entering into a, a, a world where the climate is changing very actively in response to human-based activities. So we can really see, even at our own scale, how life can influence the environment. Would you like to highlight some of the uh, the fossil uh, types that you found and and some of the controversies that you kind of go into? Because this is kind of like a fact check from previous uh, assessments, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons that uh, when you had, you know we had talked about what kind of paper would be fun to cover. Um, one of the reasons I chose this one specifically was not so much because it's flashy or because it got uh, a lot of necessarily news media attention or anything like that. One of the reasons I picked it was because it's, it is very much a uh, an homage, I would say, to a lot of the fundamental work that had been done in the 50s and 60s and 70s to document and understand these Precambrian or these um, these these idiacrid deposits from around the world, and so one of the things that that of course happened was that these sections all around uh, Namibia. So this is Namibia is just northwest of um, South Africa, and in these regions there had been a, a long history of study of fossils from these areas, and so we knew a lot about it, which meant that we have access to maps telling us where old deposits were, or field notebooks from scientists and geologists uh, from previous years telling us essentially where a lot of this work was done. But one thing we noticed when we started going through and surveying all this material was that a lot of the fossils that were described here were, when we compared it to other places around the world, were much more complex. And so when we looked at it, they had examples of organisms. And one of the big ones that that is very important is the ability to burrow or the ability to dig into the ground. 
you know, so we think of earthworms and their ability to completely aerate um, soil systems and things like that, right? So this all happens underwater as well. And so when we started evolving organisms that rather than simply living on the surface of the, this, this, you know, the surface of the ocean, these sands um, at the bottom of the ocean, what we started to get were organisms that were able to dig, organisms that were able to dive deep. Uh, we call this you know, the evolution of brains as we have organisms that are able to start doing much more complicated behavior. So we call this vertical burrowing, right? So if we look at them from our geology perspective, when you go to the rocks and you go uh, and you see these, these outcrops, you can see these traces that dig into the rock and they can, can dig downwards. And they will often be very characteristically preserved so that we can understand that these are preservations of behavior and not so much actual fossils. It's what's left behind after an organism has moved through the sediment. That's the difference between a trace fossil, right? And a, a body fossil. Exactly. So the, the, the main difference between your trace fossils and your body fossils is your trace fossils are, are examples of behavior. Now that behavior could be just sitting down and resting. It could be digging very deep. It could be drilling a hole into a, a hard shell of something or cracking a shell and breaking a shell uh, that also leaves very characteristic signals that we can see from the, from the rocks and from the fossils uh, to know that we see those kinds of behaviors. Now, the reason I'm kind of hampering on this is because the advent or the evolution, the first appearance of these vertical burrows, if we looked everywhere around the world, they are very, very, very closely linked with this Cambrian explosion, right at the base of this Cambrian. But in Namibia, they were reported from much, much older rocks. And so that's where our question became, is it that things happened earlier in Namibia? And we need to study and document this. Or is there a case that as we understand these units, these sections, these fossils better, we might find instances of incorrect interpretations now that we have additional information that was not available at the time. And so when I say it brings us really back to this kind of first principles approach, that's really what this was. We would go back to the same sites that were traditionally or classically been studied, you know, some cases 50, 60 years ago and hadn't been revisited since. We would go out there with a team of anywhere between four and eight students. We would be out there with our geological hammers and our, our notebooks, and we would scour the area and we would report back anything we could find. Uh, we would camp in the same campsites that, uh, that some of these previous workers had worked at. Um, in some cases, we were even able to get uh, those, in, those individuals to be involved with us as we were actually going back to these sites, bringing out you know, emeritus professors who uh, you know, hadn't been in the field in quite some time, were excited to come back out with us to, to really revisit these old sites. And for us, it was important because of how profound that question was. If Namibia has a completely different track record than other places around the world, that's super important. We need to understand why. On the other hand, if these are reports that are not necessarily correct, then we need to start fixing that up so that we no longer use those signals to argue things about how long it took for the Cambrian explosion to come in, or how do we subdivide temporarily these, these units if we don't know the exact distribution of these fossils. So it is 
very much these kind of first principles, bread and butter kind of approaches for paleontology. But at their core, they have these much larger big picture views. And this paper for me was a really fun one that showed that. Mm-hmm. And the and the implication of the those uh, burrowing fossils being found in the much earlier strata in the Nama group is that perhaps those early uh, metazoan bioturbators that that evolved to burrow uh, possibly could have driven the eventual extinction of the late Ediacaran biota, and that's one of the questions that this article is trying to discuss and answer. And so they actually, interestingly, there's there's multiple reasonings that the, that the article kind of points to as perhaps this is being the cause of, of their extinction. So one of them is the decrease in available habitat because of these competing species. Then the other one is the predation of the Ediacara biota by the new burrowing fauna. And so those are some of the interesting ones. And, and another one, actually, the one that you mentioned that is actually stems from the behavior of burrowing and bringing up uh, nutrients and, and oxygen that perhaps is not uh, super conducive to the uh, to the habitat or niche of that uh, late Ediacaran biota. So what do you think is the most kind of convincing cause, or at least the one that we have the most evidence for? Uh, that is a, uh, that's a question for the ages, to be honest with you. I, I wish I could say we all agreed, because that would make the story that much easier. But we really don't. And so there are some very fundamental um, differences in terms of how we kind of see this late Ediacaran and how we see uh, the termination of the loss of these organisms. So we have one branch in which argues based mostly in, in many cases on a lot of geochemical evidence combined with some really strong sedimentology evidence that oxygen probably played a very important role. Either the increase of oxygen past a certain threshold that allowed for complex, large organisms to evolve, um, allowed for behaviors like predation to evolve because they're very oxygen dependent. There's also, along those same lines, there's also been arguments that not just the, we didn't just hit a threshold in terms of oxygen, but during this time, there was a lot of fluctuation between different states and that the oceans were kind of going back and forth between states where they were pretty oxic to states in which they were possibly anoxic. And then back and forth, as we start to try and stabilize these, these ancient systems. And so some have argued that the early evolution of animals would be related to the, the strain and stress that comes with having to live in environments that have such fluctuating uh, controls over them. And then uh, there's other arguments that uh, tend to be the one that I tend to prefer, which is the idea that the world around us if you think back to a world and try to imagine a world in which we don't have any predators, we don't have any, we have very few organisms that are moving. Most of our organisms are living on the seafloor, passively absorbing nutrients or filtering nutrients from the water column. And then you bring in organisms that are able to feed off of other organisms at that scale that contain a large gut that can burrow or move within the sediment, all of those would have dramatic, dramatic effects on all these organisms that are living around, unable to either adapt to or change in response to these new uh, these new systems. 
the Ediacaran for the longest time was actually, uh, there was a, uh, one of a, a famous uh, Ediacaran worker who used to define this time as the Garden of Ediacara, kind of relating it back to the Garden of Eden, a time when there was no uh, predators, where um, everything was just kind of living jovial and free. Now, a lot of change in terms of our, our understanding of that uh, over the years as we've studied it more and more and more. But one thing that has kind of remained is that we see these stepwise transitions in terms of what kind of organisms we find. And then when we start finding tons of organisms who start evolving this ability to burrow, lo and behold, we lose um, a lot of these idiacra biota, these very specific um, fossils that I tend to study. Now, uh, whether that means it's an extinction or not is, is, a, is a kind of a bit of a debate. So I, I loved it early on when Sophia was saying it was one of the most uh, famous of, of mass extinctions. Uh, I would actually argue it's the opposite. It's almost the most hidden of mass extinctions uh, because we, we, we don't understand that time very, very well. And we um, don't actually have the amount of fossilization taking place that really allows us to see how how much of an effect this had on our ecosystem. These trace fossils, they, I'm sure that they have very small differences in them. Uh, are they are they observable with the naked eye, or are those differences microscopic? And how much of it is totally interpretation? Because you mentioned you had like these emeritus professors come back with you. Were they still like, you know, that, no, I still think that's definitely a deep vertical burrow or were, or did they kind of like change their mind on these things? Right. Um, so that was uh, really interesting. So I would argue first and foremost that the just getting your eyes adapted to be looking for trace fossils as opposed to looking for body fossils, that transition is one that actually took me a fair amount of time. When I was in the field, you know, I'd be I'd be looking at these rocks and my eyes have clues that I'm looking for when I'm looking for fossils. And so I'm looking for various textural changes. I'm looking for sometimes color variations. There's things that my eyes are looking for when I'm when, and they're trained to be looking for certain things as we're staring on the ground looking for fossils. So I had to completely shift how my eyes were looking for things. And there's probably little things more embarrassing than you know being in the field with with half a dozen students and everyone else around you is finding fossils and you're not like <laughs> your my eyes were just not able to see these things and so they were they were getting really well and they'd come back with these things I was like how did you see this how are you able to find this I'm standing right beside you and I don't see it right so it took me a long time you know a couple of days to get myself to a point where I was starting to see these same triggers and just like you said Dean. What might look like very small, minor differences to the untrained eye are incredibly profound uh, when it comes to understanding uh, what these organisms were, how they were behaving, uh, what kinds of interactions they would have had. And so when we bring it back to, to, to the idea when we brought out Ameridae to talk with us and stuff like that, often it came into this category of how we interpreted strange things. And, and by strange things, I mean, if we look into the paper, we dedicate an entire page, a plate that has dozens of pictures on it of strange looking things that have probably been called fossils in the past, but that probably don't represent fossils. What they most likely represent is the interaction between sediments, wave action, and 
bacterial communities that would glue and cement rocks uh, and, and, and sands and sediments in different ways. And so all of these interactions between the rocks, the oceans, um, they're what we call abiogenic. They they're not reliant on biology. And so a lot of these structures look very convincingly like fossils. And so it's quite common for me as a paleontologist to get photos sent to me from amateurs or friends in the field and being like, hey, look, I found a fossil. And I have to be like, no, I'm sorry, that's a ripple. Or no, I'm sorry, that's a sedimentary structure. It looks a lot like a fossil, I understand, but it's not, right? Uh, the idea of getting concretions brought to us as, as dinosaur eggs is, a, is something that we get a lot, a lot, a lot, right? So in this case, that's what a lot of this, what we believe is. And I think what's important is this idea that it's interpretations, right? We interpreted these things as representing either biological or non-biological units. And other of our colleagues have interpreted it differently. And, and I think that that's really a, an important part of science is it's not so much we know the answer every single time we do it. What we do is we put forward an evidence in a case and we let the community afterwards kind of go through and, and, and judge that case. You know, do they believe the arguments we made? And if they don't believe the arguments they made, it gives them an opportunity to now go into the field, uh, collect similar data and, and demonstrate how their data shows a different pattern. And so, you know, the, the whole idea of the scientific method and how it goes forward is based on the interpretation of data. And so I would argue that a lot of the changes came down to as we've become more experienced and as we've started doing everything and, and you know, we bring it back to this multidisciplinary side of things, right? As we started bringing in oceanographers, as we started bringing in chemists and physicists and biologists into these earth science projects and these earth science directions, we've learned so much about the natural world. And the world, as we interpreted it 50 years ago, is different from what we interpret now. And I am guaranteed that a lot of the things I'm interpreting now are going to be completely different 50 years from now. But the data itself might still be there because we collected the data fine. It's how we interpret that data that changes. So I would say that that's a big part of it. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the catastrophism versus gradualism debate in Earth's history. I think this is a kind of like a perfect, this, this paper kind of addresses, uh, addresses the evolutionary side of that. So whether most evolutionary changes occurred fast because of intense environmental change or kind of slowly. So where do you kind of stand on, on that? I think it's a case of scale, right? So when, when we think of things as being fast or slow, it's going to be very different from a biology perspective or from an earth science perspective, right? Um, if, if, if I was telling to you that, you know, these, these, these rocks deposits were deposited in something between 10,000 years and a hundred thousand years as a paleontologist, that is a, that is a blink of an eye. That is a, even though it represents a hundred thousand years, that is a very, very, very short amount of time. But from a biological perspective, right? A hundred thousand years, that could represent millions and millions of generations which are ample amount of time to cause any form of uh, gradual or non-gradual evolution that goes with it. So um, I've always kind of viewed it as not so much as a catastrophe and not so much as a, uh, you know, a rapid change. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I came in with a biology background, right? I was very much, I viewed the world as a biologist and I learned with time uh, what it meant to talk on geological timescales, what it meant to talk about processes that take place on geological scales. Um, so I would still argue that that I think most things function at a fairly a fairly slow rate. I don't think it's it's, it's massively uh, huge, but 
when you look at certain events like mass extinction events, those tend to be instances of something being very wrong and going very differently. And again, at those points, those are scales that result in very, very rapid changes. So yeah, I don't think I'm giving you much of an answer with the exception of just, I think they're both come at play. And I think it comes down to how we interpret fast and slow and how we interpret a catastrophe versus non. What are your views on the Gaia hypothesis that that life uh, is able to kind of maintain and create a, a stability in the conditions of Earth that that it likes to live in? Uh, do you think that it's a like it has some serious weight to it, or is it just kind of like a w- wishful thinking? That's interesting. Um, so it, it, it's funny you mentioned that because. Um, of course, when we're talking, you know, myself and a lot of my colleagues on here, I certainly should mention that um, the lead driver on this was Simon Derrick, who's uh, one of my close, long-standing colleagues down at Vanderbilt. And so um, he is someone who we had talked quite a bit about these kind of ideas and concepts about it. And I remember us like sitting down and talking about Gaia and how it kind of says, like from one side, it just sounds like such a crazy idea. Uh, you know, that the earth as a living sphere, the earth is a living thing, right? But when you sit down and, and you actually look at, at how the world responds to itself and how drastic catastrophic things can happen and then the, the, the world adapts to it, you know, it's interesting. It brings it on a new scale. It, it, it makes you think about, is it alive? No, I don't think it's alive. But is it subjected to a lot of the same controls that life is subjected to. That makes sense to me. That's something I can understand. Uh, I usually like using the examples, which as an earth scientist, right? Rocks have gone extinct, right? There's certain rock types that are common in the Precambrian that you can't find anywhere now because oxygen levels have gone up to such a point that you can't deposit certain kinds of rocks. And it's interesting when you start thinking about rocks as units that can evolve and go extinct in the same way life can evolve and go extinct. Um, yeah, it's so I don't, again, I'm not giving you much of an answer, but I could see how it's a fun interpretation of how you would want to think about the world in a different way. Yeah, I think these questions are definitely, I mean, they're, they're, they're certainly not easy to answer. They're almost kind of out of left field. I, I certainly don't expect a definite answer. I feel like it's almost always guaranteed that it's just going to be some combination because there's such big questions that it's, it's hard to kind of wrap my mind around it. Yeah, no, I and, and and that's what makes them a lot of fun when you actually sit down and think about it. These are, you know, these are big, grandiose questions. Despite the fact that, you know, we can go back into ancient civilizations and clearly mining was important and the, you know, uh, aspects of of, you know, a lot of ancient cultures understood their rocks and 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 their minerals and um you know, how uh, rivers interacted with them and all that kind of stuff. Like there's strong components of earth sciences that have been done for years, you know, generations and generations, centuries, millennia. But as a discipline, earth science itself, modern earth sciences is fairly young, right? I remember talking to professors when I was an undergrad who had come up through the ranks before plate tectonics was even a concept. And, And so when we sit down and think of how many fundamental concepts in earth sciences are only just recently being discovered it makes it a really exciting field to bring people into and um, this idea of the interconnectivity of the earth with everything else is also a very kind of newish way of looking at the world um, to, to view all of these as 
interconnected spheres that have strong influences on each other. Um, you know, one of my colleagues at, at UTM, Professor Schombong, uh, Lindsay, she, you know, works on aspects of how climate uh, can interact with mountain building events. And so there's all these different sides of how earth sciences interact with earth sciences, interacts with climate science, interacts with biological sciences that I think very few other disciplines are able to really touch on these different spheres. And very few other disciplines allow you to come in with a background that is completely different and then be welcome and brought into an earth science uh, degree and then to start viewing the world as an earth scientist, despite having a really strong background in chemistry or physics or biology or, or, or you know, the social science and the humanities. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can uh, give our listeners a little teaser for those of you that were, you know, captured by paleontology and are interested in earth's history or in a different field like like mark was at a certain point and, and are thinking of coming in what questions still remain unanswered in paleontology that someone that's enthusiastic could could explore so i would i would say that that some of the the coolest stuff we've been doing in paleontology lately is something i kind of touched upon a little bit early on which is bringing in new techniques and new ideas to study these old organisms. So one of the one of the of the recent projects that I'm involved with that my, my postdoc, my current postdoc is working on, uh, Brant Gibson, who comes to us from uh, Simon Derrick's laboratory down in Vanderbilt. Um, he works on various aspects of computational fluid dynamics, and so he looks at can we create, for lack of a better word, um, these artificial flume tanks, these artificial oceans, can we then put digital fossils into these artificial oceans to understand how these organisms would interact with those oceans? So it brings in this idea of functional biology. How is the biology functioning? Um, And then bringing in this other uh, side of engineering and fluid dynamics of how fluids would interact with these organisms. How do these organisms then react to flow? And can we then say something about how these organisms fed or reproduced based on how they tried to minimize drag if if they're dealing with ocean currents or how they tried to maximize their exposure to water currents if they're trying to filter feed, for instance. And so when you sit down and think about it, you know, these are a bunch of ones and zeros that are coming in to tell us about how organisms that are 600 million years old were feeding. And so I think that if I was to, and that's usually something I tell a lot of my graduate students, is that if you're ever interested in paleontology, bring something new to the field. Uh, Bring a different way of approaching the topic. So if you want to do paleontology, become a really good geochemist who uses fossils as their tools. If you want to be um, studying aspects of behavior, for instance, use our knowledge of modern biology to then bring these ideas into the past and deep into time. So that's what I would say is, is a lot of the of where paleontology going now is using a lot of the data that we have and viewing it through different lenses. And these lenses are different disciplines. And then my final question for you would be, if you weren't a, a paleontologist, uh, if you didn't study the things that you do, what would you be doing with your life? <laughs> is right now really the time to be asking me that question? <laughs> Funny enough, some some of my you know some of my the things I've always really enjoyed was 
Um, being a biologist, I think I most likely would have been involved in many ways in the biological sciences. I was a big fan uh, at the time, like I mentioned, insects and parasites. And I was really interested in aspects of how evolution has really pushed certain organisms to be so specialized that one little screw up in their life cycle and everything disappears. It can't function anymore. And so there was a, there's a group of parasites that are essentially parasites of parasites. And I just thought that that was fascinating, right? <laughs> Wasps that are parasites of very specific worms that are parasites of snails or something like that. And you sit down and you're like, the life cycle to make that happen is just insane. And yeah. so that was something I was always really, really interested in. And I remember, I think if I had not taken courses in earth sciences, I probably would have become a parasitologist. And I think I would have been studying parasites, which like now that I actually sit down and think about it, I don't think that'd be necessarily that fun of a situation. I, I do know many uh, you know, people who've done parasitology as studies. And I remember one of my colleagues, like he had a summer job, which was just to grab his arm and to stick it into a mosquito tank to feed the malaria mosquitoes so that they would oh. be able to, right? And, and these are the kind of things that, that like I could imagine myself doing if I was a parasitologist, but uh, I just don't think that would go that way. Um, yeah, that would, I could see myself doing that or yeah. That's pretty cool. I, I really like the, the, that idea of the uh, insects. I, I have an ant farm colony myself. I really enjoy that aspect of biology, the extended phenotype, you know, coming out. It's, it's really cool stuff. Um, okay. So should we, uh, do our ending quote? This, this time has really flown by. Sophia, you want to do the quote? Sure. Thanks, Dean. Um, yeah. So as our listeners know, we do a quote at the end and this one actually comes to us from, uh, this is a, a guest generated quote. So, um, this is from, I believe one of Mark's, uh, previous supervisors, right? Yeah. He was, uh, one of my supervisors when I was at Queens. Ah, perfect. It's short, but sweet. If you work in the Idia Karin, you're working with 10% data and 90% imagination. So Mark, would you care to explain to us what that means? It's interesting too, because, um, you know, I've had colleagues who've been almost insulted by that quote, right? It's this idea that uh, whenever we talk about things in the Idiacrin, all we're doing is making stuff up. But what the quote is kind of more talking about is this idea that um, when we're limited in terms of data, we really have to start thinking outside the box. Um, you know, when when I when I'm collecting Ediacaran fossils, I can go days and days without seeing anything, and then all of a sudden you find one, and it changes everything. And so, when fossils are rare, when localities are are don't have a lot of specimens in them, and things like that, when your data is limited, you're really forced to think about one new approaches to using that data but also new interpretations and directions for that data. But the problem is that when you don't have a lot of data, we also don't have a lot of limits on that thinking outside the box, right? And so in other times in Earth history, we have some fairly strong geological or biological or oceanographic controls that we understand very well that limit the range of interpretations we can put in. Unfortunately, when we're dealing with the Ediacaran, there are so many things that we have not fully grasped, that we have not fully studied to the extent of, as in other times in Earth history, that those boundaries, those limits are not there. 
And so I've made it more or less my life mission to chart, to really focus in on the data generation part, building, building data, getting more data. And then from there, letting my colleagues and people like that use that data for interpretive purposes afterwards. But I would say that that's probably the biggest shift we've now had is that one, the Ediacaran paleontology is growing at a really quick rate. Uh, when I first came in, there were very few people working on the Ediacaran. And now we go to conferences and there's entire sections that are devoted to studying the Ediacaran, entire um, special sessions on Ediacaran life and things like that. And so around the world, we are now acknowledging the importance of the Precambrian and the importance of the Ediacaran. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this quote doesn't work for me. Uh, by the time I get, you know, maybe by the end of my career, I might not be able to say that anymore. But um, it is fun to be able to work in a time where even one paper, even one discovery can really change how we view the whole discipline. And it's hard to do that in other fields of paleontology, whereas it happens very frequently when dealing with Ediacaran paleontology specifically. I definitely think science is, you have this underappreciation of, of science as an artistic act, as a creative act and a social act, you know? Yes. It's, it's yes. definitely all of those things. It's a cultural act. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. And I think it's fun when, um, when we can view our world from an artistic perspective as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to do this episode recording with us. This was a fantastic episode. We had a lot of fun. Thank you. Time just flew. Thanks so much, guys. This was really nice. I had a really fun time. Um, these kind of things often make me nervous. So you guys are really, really great at, at calming down your invited speakers. And uh, you, yeah, you, you really made it easy for me. So I really, really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Um, okay. So thank you to our guests and thank you to our listeners. We hope to have you tune in next week again for a brand new episode of Earth News Interviews. Until then, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university.